slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. Dan Carlin, Common Sense. It's hard sometimes to resist the temptation, especially when you're getting a lot of encouragement from you folks out there to simply turn on the mic after a big event happens and start just spewing you know, your feelings at the moment and what this means to you and what you think you might see and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes when certain kinds of incidents happen, those can be very powerful shows and those can be the kind of things where capturing the mood of that moment is more important than the long-term thinking that could go into things because you'll, you'll be able to do that forever. You only get to capture that moment, though, when it's happening. In the case of the vote that happened the other day in, in Britain, in the UK, over leaving the European Union... There were a lot of people that wanted me to turn on the mic and just start talking right away and tell them my thoughts on the matter. But, you know, it's, it's one of those cases where I'm really glad I didn't. Because one of the things that has moved me the most on this is the coverage since the vote. And I wouldn't have had that if I had turned on the mic instantly and started you know, telling you what I thought five minutes later this might mean. I did talk about it on Twitter while it was going on. You can follow us at at DC Common Sense if you want to. Just a warning, though. I tend not to tweet for a long time, and then I tend to make up for it all in, like, bursts. I'm a burst tweeter, binge tweeter. But we were talking about this while it happened because it was so interesting. And, you know, I, I, there are so many things I try to remind myself about at moments like this. One is temper the enjoyment of the interest with the understanding that it's painful for people. We talk about this in the history show all the time, don't we? That, you know, this story of the Russians finally coming in and taking Berlin and all these things. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. But, you know, the people that lived through that might wonder about what you were getting so much enjoyment out of, right? The most traumatic event in their lifetimes, maybe in the history of their family's lifetimes. And it's interesting bedtime reading for yours truly. So, so I try to understand that while we sit here and talk about the potential ramifications and what it all means, this Brexit thing, there are already people that have lost a lot of money. Pension funds, too. Don't, let's, let's not pretend this is all Wall Street people that can afford it. There's a lot of wealth that dries up with any kind of decision like this. But let's be honest. I mean, this, sometimes this is when progress is made, eggs get broken, right? And sometimes the reason we don't make progress is because we're so dang afraid of breaking the eggs. And it's understandable because sometimes you break a lot more eggs than you ever wanted to. But progress can be painful, so let's understand that um, while maybe some is being made, the jury is, of course, still out on this. Eggs have definitely been broken already. But now that there's been a couple of days to, you know, sort of absorb and get post-game reports, and especially for an American when you're dealing with stuff that's uh, the internal politics of another country, it's always nice to be able to read their own papers and see what their own experts think that this means and what comes next, and what the protocol is for this or that. With a couple of days to ruminate about this, it's, it's almost, in some ways, and I know this is going to be weird, but it's always weird. This is kind of how I always am on these things. I don't know why I'm so dreadfully predictable, but, but I mean, there's some kind of, like, light at the end of the tunnel, silver lining things here, maybe. And I'm not the only person saying this, by the way, so let's, let's put any thoughts to rest that I'm, you know, coming at this from a totally unique angle, except that so much of what's being written in the wake of this, you know, the real downside here is this whole thing can just die down in five minutes with our short-term attention spans. But for the moment, as we speak, in the wake of this shocking turn of events in the UK, everyone's talking about this stuff now that we've been talking about for a long time. 
and asking questions that nobody's been asking in this society. And how long have we said on this program, and, you know, it has, has yet to be tested, but maybe we're starting to see the beginnings of that. How long have we said that so much of what goes on could not stand the light of day, could not stand, you know, being exposed to everyone and having a general understanding amongst most people, you know, that it's happening. The emperor has no clothes. How many analogies have we used, right, over the years? There's a decent chance that's what this is. And there have been a lot of good articles. I mean, at one point I was just stockpiling the articles to quote to you. And when I had about like 14 in my hand, I thought, okay, this is ridiculous. You shouldn't even go this route. There's so many good ones. I know he's not everyone's cup of tea. He's a little bit bitter and acidic, but I think that's his shtick. And I, 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 I like idiosyncratic uh, journalists. I maybe was one. Um, but Glenn Greenwald did, did a piece where he just summed it up in the internet where he went down every point. You know, how this Brexit story is so much bigger than the UK. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sure folks in the UK are going, listen, Dan, we never get to talk about something here. Could you, could you get specific and tell us what it means for us? Well, first of all, let's understand, Dan doesn't know what it means for you. Your system uh, is probably better understood by your people. I'm better at the macro thing when it comes to other people's countries. And I'm fascinated by how wonderfully interesting it all is to see... This globalized world of ours, right? Everybody tells you it's a globalized world. To see the populations of so many of these countries finding themselves in very similar sorts of moods. They're not exactly the same because they're filtered through the lens of the individual country, right? So, so maybe some of the things in this country that have people in a very similar mood mean that some of you support Trump or some of you support Sanders, right? They both represent an outlet for people who are mad at the system, right? Well, in Britain, they have... Similar things. In many countries in Europe, they do right now, too. It's a registering of discontent. And, and the way that the systems in all these countries have developed over the years is, is to become narrower and narrower in terms of what the establishment parties that usually win elections are willing to say, meaning that people who want to think outside the box a little bit, the increasingly narrow box you know, are more and more dealing with candidates that are either really from outside parties that don't have much of a chance at all to win or that are filled with people that maybe don't think like you in any other respect. Maybe they fall into the extremist category, but they're the only ones talking about this other thing that you think needs to happen. A lot of good stuff, by the way, in all these articles about, you know, it's, it's funny that the Trump followers, I think, really benefited in, in many ways from what happened in Europe, because even though the British press and, and some of the, um, some of the public opinion in Britain seems to portray the people that voted to get out of the European Union in very Trump supporter-like terms, a lot of the same adjectives being thrown around, it's clear that I think the American media who are talking about this realize that it's not a very good comparison and that this must be more than just the Trump racist thing. There's something going on bigger. And again, this is why I'm filled with a sort of good feeling today. When was the last time I woke up and saw journalists all over the world writing things I agreed with? You know, writing things where I'm nodding my head going, that's exactly right, that's exactly... And, and folks, you know, if you believe, as I believe, that in order to have a chance of fixing anything and improving anything, you have to identify what it is, and you have to agree upon what it is, and you have to talk about what to do about what it is. You can't get to any of those steps if we don't get to where we are today. My worry is, of course, as I said, with our short attention spans, we may not be here tomorrow. It's like a giant world population afflicted with mass case of Alzheimer's disease, but... Theoretically, theoretically, the trends that have led to what are happening today aren't going away. 
So even though we may forget about it tomorrow and move on to the next crises or Kardashian story or what have you, there will be something else like this. Because the problems that have manifested to create the mood that manifests in these kinds of votes isn't going away either because there's not enough attention being paid by any of the people in positions to do anything about it. It requires a fundamental recalibration. It requires a lot of the people who are in the positions that run the world, you know, the serious, um, understandable, respected uh, sorts of positions, um, it would require them to analyze their own set of beliefs and maybe change them based on the evidence. There are so many things about the Brexit situation and, and the Trump situation and, and the dissatisfaction in many different countries related to this same sort of thing that are symptoms. To me, immigration's a symptom. It's one of those things, and it's a very nasty thing in terms of its ability to do so, but it's one of those things that slips into one of the, the fissures that divide and, and, and disrupt societies and makes it bigger. It's an accelerant. But it's not something that bothers people as much if you don't have these other problems going on. And the other problems are basic. They are about being able to survive and prosper. In a, in a society where what the electorate wants doesn't matter, that's not a concern of yours. You just bulk up the riot police and the anti-riot control measures and you execute more activists and you go down that route and it's a pretty understood path toward trying to maintain uh, your authority over the long haul. But if you live in a society where people have the right to vote and you ignore too many of their needs for too long, they will kill you. And we've talked about this many times, haven't we? We did a show in 2007, and then we did a show right afterwards. I've talked about this before. Sorry, those of you who've listened forever, you know this. But, but the first one was called What About the Losers? And the second one was called Boot Camps for Buttheads. And the What About the Losers thing is exactly what it sounds like. In every system on the planet, you have people that prosper and do well in it, and you have people that don't. It's built in. Everybody understands it. The questions, though, we were asking is how many of the people who, and I'm using air quotes with my fingers now, are the losers in a society, how many of those people can you have and still have the society functioning? And nobody answers that question. And, 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 in, and a lot of articles have pointed this out in the last couple of days too, how wonderful. But I mean, without asking the question, you have a whole bunch of people, the ones who are doing well in society. Let's remember the people that are doing poorly in society are not the ones running the world. Do I have to make that point or is, do we all understand that? Okay. Those people for too long have been able to say things like, we live in a meritocracy. Everybody gets ahead or sinks or swim on their own. And heck, have you seen all the grants available to people and all these kinds of things? I mean, I listen to one of these financial channels and they have a guy or two who, who he has the most wonderful way to say, let them eat cake when he talks about poor people and he tries to make everybody listening feel, listen, these aren't even poor people. I mean, I think he said something like, America has the richest poor people in all of human history. They all have iPhones. They're just living beyond their means, blah, blah, blah. As though talking about them is something you do for moralistic reasons. And those people are just not getting it. But maybe you hope that the elite are kind of understanding now. It's not a moral question. Even if you have no morals at all, you have to care about the people that are not doing well enough in society. Because if you don't long enough and they get too numerous, they will make you feel their pain. And they just did in Britain. And they may in November here in the United States. And while it's popular to portray the supporters of Donald Trump all in one light. They're all a bunch of racists and the KKK supports Donald Trump. 
you know, those of us who've been through a bunch of these roundups before understand that, you know, when you start trying to say these radical supporters of this person support this same cause, therefore that person's bad, steer clear of those kind of generalizations. Because remember, by those kind of generalizations, I mean, when I was growing up, we were just at the tail end of a lot of people loving to say the civil rights movement is something support. The Communist Party supports the civil rights movement. Therefore, you know, ipso facto, the civil rights movement is communist or it's tied to the communist or somehow they are tarred and feathered because the communist also supports civil rights. All of these situations are more complicated than the media generally has you believe. Again, got some very nuanced things in the past 48, 72 hours, though. So I'm enjoying life again. But one of the complicated things is that the support to all these causes and in some cases individuals is not something you can neatly peg as because of the, it's because they're low educated. No, it's because they hate foreigners. I mean, it includes all those things and yet includes people who care about none of those things. In fact, one article that Greenwald linked to that was great basically said what I think we said in a, in a previous show not that long ago was that for a, a decent chunk of both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump supporters in this country – and maybe a decent chunk of the people who wanted to leave the EU or at least voted that way in the UK the other day, their motivation was they didn't even care about the ramifications. Don't tell me what's going to happen, the dire things. I don't care. This is a middle finger vote to you. Or if you're in Great Britain, it's a two finger vote for you. But you, you understand. I don't believe what you're saying. I don't trust you. I don't think anything you say is for my own benefit. I've seen you lie to me before. Things suck right now. I'm willing to take a chance that you're wrong. Or I just don't like you. And you don't like Trump, so I like Trump, because I don't like you. It's an interesting, I mean, it's, it's, we're doing some interesting self-examination on both sides of the Atlantic right now. And for as long as it lasts, it is a redemptive, healing thing, believe it or not. It is funny, as is normal human behavior, to see everybody try to squash, I'm going to try to avoid doing that myself today, though, but no promises, to squash their own vision of the world, to see things through their own normal prism and then factor this latest evidence like Brexit's vote through their own lens. Oh, well, this just confirms everything I've ever said, because that's basically what I'm saying in this program today. <laughs> it confirms everything I've ever told you. The only difference might be that you can go read it all over the internet now today, and that's the best part. I'm glad I waited 72 hours or whatever it is, because I'm reading people now talking about systems that don't work anymore. And how long have we been discussing the fact that we're dealing with systemic problems? This is why, you know, yours truly has never been this Republican or this Democrat or this liberal or this... Because we need all of us to fix the broken system. You argue about the, where you want the system to be used to take us after the broken system is fixed. Part of the broken system, one, is lack of accountability. We talk about that all the time, right? This, ben, this show is shaping up to be a show where we should just record me saying... We talk about that all the time, don't we? And then you could make the sound of like me patting myself on the back afterwards. But it's important because that's the best part of all this. You know, for like five minutes, I'm winning. I'm going to be like the Charlie Sheen hashtag winning. I have tiger blood for about the next 48 hours till the international Alzheimer's sets back in. But I mean, gosh, even the, remember the World Trade Organization stuff? And the, uh, we, how long we've talked about NAFTA and GATT. I mean, look at the way the media sneered at Occupy Wall Street. And, and what's funny, again, is, is we're dealing with, with all different sides of the political spectrum, right? This is, and, and I think this is also part of what is starting to sober some people. It would be so easy if it was only like extreme right-wingers or extreme left-wingers or whatever that were part of this. But it's increasingly clear that the people who are not doing well enough in society to be considered successful— and I'll define that word in a minute, 
is large enough on all sides of the political spectrum so that in a system where their votes still matter in one respect or another, they are dangerous. And the analogy we have used forever is that we're like a a human body. And for a long time, there have been a lot of people, sort of the brain maybe, they would maybe even say the heart of the human body. Um, You know, they don't want to deal with that infected little finger that might be the poor or the marginalized or those people just not doing well enough in society. But look, they have iPhones, let them eat cake. Um, But the problem is, is that if that finger gets infected enough, it could become gangrenous. And all of a sudden, after a while, you will find yourself dying because you did not address that problem before that problem got too advanced and too dangerous to the body politic. And, and, and what you're starting to see now is the people out there, the gangrenous fingers, shall we call them? You know, we love the poor. We called them the gangrenous finger. Um, it, but, but we had said a moment ago, successful, the definition of successful. This gets back to this guy's idea that, you know, they all have iPhones. They're the richest poor people in history. That's not how people measure themselves. And either you understand that and you're being disingenuous hoping that your audience doesn't, or you don't understand that, in which case it would be better if you didn't opine on the subject. That's not how people judge themselves. They don't sit there and go, listen, I know I can't make ends meet, but it's my own fault and I've got an iPhone. What am I complaining about? People judge their relative status and their success in society and how they're doing based on a curve. One of the wonderful things about middle class as a concept was it gave a giant section of the economic pie to a group of people that could basically decide, listen, we're basically as good off as the neighbors. We're all doing fine. You know, we're not rich, but we're all doing, you know, that's a great thing. That's a stabilizing force. The problem we have with our system is it's unstable now. The EU was inherently unstable. And one of the things, you know, as an American, and so take what I say with a grain of salt, folks in the UK, but I mean, don't you get the feeling that part of this problem is that the EU was so effed up to begin with? That the concept maybe of a unified Europe didn't suck, but the way it was actually implemented was horrible. And from an American's point of view, again, I look at it and just think, where's the democracy? I mean, you know, if, if the folks in Britain maybe didn't have enough of a voice in their own government, how much of a voice do they have in one for a united Europe? I went and tried to figure out the decision making process and the whole thing of the European Union. Could it be more Byzantine? Could they, des- could they design it any more like the U.S. tax code where you're going, geez, you're... I mean, it's crazy. I, Americans would get out of their minds um, to, to find out they were involved in anything like that. And when you try to tell them that some of these trade deals do some of that, you know, once they understand it, most Americans don't like the idea of giving up any sovereignty. And maybe that's, you know, a crowd in Britain, too, that wants to have a little bit more control over their own government. And I got to be honest with you, as an American looking at you guys, who doesn't want a little bit more control over their own government? I think about five or six other EU members right now are thinking about having similar kinds of referendums. There are understandable reasons involved. There are also people who are neo-Nazis and, you know, the U.S. equivalent of the KKK, and that's the problem, you know. The civil rights movement may be very moral, but they also may attract the attention of the Communist Party. And then what do you do when you're both on the same side, right? It's more complex than that, isn't it? Another side of this is the accountability question. And Greenwald points that I love that where, and we've talked about this too, the the idea that nobody's being held accountable for anything. So people can make mistakes at the highest levels in the society and do things that your average board-certified surgeon in the country could never get away with even once, over and over and over again. Be sued for, you know, malpractice if you did this in, in private business, right? I mean, if you are, for example, the people that decide 
that, that you're going to invade Iraq, for example, and that there's going to be this certain outcome and, and you sell that to the American people, that's fine. But when you're wrong, that should be it for you. Right? You, you don't get three strikes and you're out when you're making decisions that cost trillions of dollars and, you know, kill hundreds of thousands of people over the long haul. You're, you're fine to give it a stab, but you shouldn't be allowed to be in the halls of government perpetually and on all these talk shows as an analyst when your track record's horrifying. If you put a surgeon on CNN to talk about uh, analyzing this latest surgery, but he killed 30 people that weren't supposed to die when he went in the surgery and lost his license and everything else, you'd say, why are you having this guy on the show? In our country, being wrong about anything does not ruin your career at all if you're at the very highest levels of, say, government and policy and politics. Over time, that encourages more bad decisions, more bad thinking. And the funniest thing is, and it's been a dynamic I've got to watch play out over my lifetime, so it's interesting, is to watch how much of a vested interest the people that are wrong and were wrong have in making sure they never get called on being wrong. Because that would make them have to basically go back and do a mea culpa for their whole career up until that point. So they become, there's a vested interest in, in solidifying their legacy by making sure that the mistakes are never acknowledged. And this is something that Greenwald and all these other people are talking about too. At the beginning of his article, he says something kind of like what I was saying about how interesting it is to see other journalists maybe really questioning this sort of stuff. But then he points out the other kind of people, which are the ones that still refuse to go back and actually think that they might actually be part of the problem. So this is uh, from the beginning of Greenwald's piece in The uh, Intercept from June 25th, 2016. And it has that wonderful tone that only Greenwald uses to such good effect, this acid, that's really an old-fashioned sort of maybe like an H.L. Mencken kind of tone. He starts his piece off by saying, quote, The decision by UK voters to leave the EU is such a glaring repudiation of the wisdom and relevance of elite political and media institutions that, for once, their failures have become a prominent part of the storyline. Media reaction to the Brexit vote falls into two general categories. One, Earnest, candid attempts to understand what motivated voters to make this choice, even if that means indicting one's own establishment circles. And two, petulant, self-serving, simple-minded attacks on disobedient pro-leave voters for being primitive, xenophobic bigots and stupid to boot, all to evade any reckoning with their own responsibility. He writes, quote, Virtually every reaction that falls into the former category emphasizes the profound failures of Western establishment factions. These institutions have spawned pervasive misery and inequality, only to spew condescending scorn at their victims when they object. End quote. He then quotes an L.A. Times piece by Vincent Bevins. And, and, and the quote is perfect for helping to put all this into a larger perspective than just the personalities or the individual votes. So Greenwald quoting Bevins has Bevins saying, quote, both Brexit and Trumpism are the very, very wrong answers to legitimate questions that urban elites have refused to ask for 30 years. In particular, since the 1980s, the elites in rich countries have overplayed their hand taking all the gains for themselves and just covering their ears when anyone else talks. And now they're watching in horror as voters revolt, end quote. There's a lot of that out there today. That's wild stuff to someone like yours truly. Remember, I am a fringe person. 
So, so when I read this stuff in major outlets, all the, I mean, it's, everybody came over to the fringe is all like, I woke up and the fringe was very crowded all of a sudden. I used to be able to put my towel anywhere on this beach I wanted, and now I wake up and you're all here. Means I'll have to move to the mainstream, Ben. And to an American, I should point out that there is, and I think I, I use the word seductive on Twitter, there's something very seductive about the way the British population was able to make this decision on leaving the EU. It was a referendum. And I understand that Britain hasn't had too many of these, which, which I'm also jealous about in a way, because I just know that to me that shows that you haven't abused the process. If Americans could have those kind of referendums, it would be seductive because all of a sudden we would have like the ultimate veto. All this corruption I talk about all the time, no big deal. The American people are the ultimate ability to put the kibosh on that if they want to with a referendum. But we went, we'd have one every day. We'd have two a day. And eventually we would be having them over things like, should Sean Hannity be banned from talk radio? Big referendum tomorrow. I mean, you know, we'd be doing what Athens did and we'd be exiling all the people we didn't like. And how long would I be here? Broadcasting on tape, live from Ireland. Still a part of the EU for now. That would be my tagline, right? But for an American... That referendum thing is wild to watch. It's like a little bit of a moth to a flame thing because every American who's ever studied any of the early history of this country or constitutional stuff or anything, I mean, the thing they drill into your head over and over and over again is thank God we don't have the power of something like a referendum. Our founding fathers were supposed to have studied Greece and Rome and, and tried to analyze what went wrong in their systems and what checks and balances failed them. And the idea of a referendum was one of like the, you know, would you say top three things American founding fathers didn't want to have any part of. But let's remember, some of those people thought that countries had life cycles, but eventually, you know, what they were building was doomed over time anyway. And if you decided we're right in the death throes of that right now, then you might want a referendum just to bring Gaius Marius in this once and save us. Tempting, isn't it? Solve all of your problems with one vote. And after all, you know, it'd be the people's vote. And the problem you have in a modern society like ours trying to argue this is on one hand, we can all recognize that putting a referendum-type power, heck, even voting power is a little scary, into the hands of those people that they interview on person-on-the-street interviews during the late-night talk shows and ask them questions like, who was George Washington? And they go, oh, my homeroom teacher? Uh, and you're thinking, oh, I hope that person doesn't vote. But they do. Sometimes. Let's give them a referendum. Let them make a really big decision. Shall we go to war with some country? I wouldn't give that decision. I think I'd put a check. There'd be a veto power. The country wants to go to war with something. Ask the voters if, if they're okay with that. Oh, George Washington's my homeroom teacher. So the obvious other side, though, is you sit there and go, God, I'm a little scared of democracy. Okay, well, that's fine. So, so who are you going to trust power with? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't want an absolute dictator or a king either because there's obvious problems with that. So who do you give it to? Well, maybe the people who don't know that George Washington wasn't their homeroom teacher can, can vote for somebody smarter than themselves who can go mix with other people smarter than the average people and they can debate these things among experts and... Well, that's kind of what we have. I guess the fly in the ointment and that whole idea was we sort of forgot the idea that there could be people that are more powerful than the people that are being talked about in all these wonderful stories today who could go in and say, listen, uh, I don't know what you're hearing about uh, building that landfill in that community, but let me, tell, let me tell you what you're missing out on this. And by the way, uh, aren't you running for office uh, next year? We'd like to help you out with that. We, you know, I mean, just the system's broken in, in short layman's terms the system's broken and the system is no longer just the united states system it's funny seeing these same trends among these same populations and, and one is tempted to suggest that this is all part of the internet 
and the interconnectivity and the fact that trends can bounce from one continent to another instantaneously now, this is basically, I want to say the beginnings. Here's the thing, though. This has been rumbling for a long time. Every era has a precursor era. And when you start to study it 100 years after the fact or 150 years after the fact, the histories always go deeper, don't they? They don't start off with the Second World War, for example. You get into the, well, you got to get to the Versailles Treaty and then the, what the Great Depression did and the rise of fashion. You know, you're setting the stage and the foundation of all the stuff that was bubbling up that made the big changes that eventually happened possible. Sometimes you get a 9-11 moment where history has changed overnight, although some people would say, listen, Dan, that was bubbling under the surface for a long time too. But sometimes you get things that are more evolutionary in scale, and then they're, every now and then you get the equivalent of a stock market crash that, that changes things to sort of a new norm. Is, is this it, or is this another example, as I said, where we're going to forget about this in four days, and maybe as November approaches, and maybe as Trump starts looking very dangerous to a lot of people in the country, and that, now they start asking the questions again. So these trends have been underway for decades now, right? And you, and you read stories about them. Greenwald points some of that out too, but sort of these, these other authors and, and the things we talked about, I mean, the signs have been there. So, so is this a wake-up moment where everybody goes, aha, you know, now I see where, where we're heading, or is this, you know, the five minutes of interest before we move on to something else? Greenwald quotes a Guardian story from Ian Jack, and the headline of the article was, quote, In this Brexit vote, the poor turned on an elite who ignored them. End quote. The gangrenous finger, see? How long do you think you can get away with saying, These are the richest poor in all history. They all have iPhones and they're all living beyond their means. Doesn't matter. That's not going to get them to not vote against your interest. You better be thankful they don't have a referendum in the U.S. I think I'm thankful we don't have one either, but sometimes just for spite purposes, you know, if you don't feel people's pain enough and there are enough people feeling pain, you will have an unstable system. And in a system where people can vote, don't be surprised that it manifests this way. How long do you think you were going to be able to control a system by using two parties that had relatively similar beliefs on the grand state of things to keep people from voting any other way? And once again, when you read what Greenwald says at the end of this piece where he talks about that. How, you know, I mean, how can I not smile inside? Because you just think the more people writing about this, the more people talking about this, the more this seeps in and the more it becomes part of a general consensus that we can use as a foundational part of our organization when we're looking at the world situation saying, what do we need to do to make things better? Greenwald says from later in the piece talking about you know, the problem with trying to change the system through voting in the U.S., and it's, as we've always said, you know, it's, it's party-related. Quote, Even more important, the mechanism that Western citizens are expected to use to express and rectify dissatisfaction, elections, has largely ceased to serve any corrective function. End quote. And then Greenwald does what we were just talking about with, you know, the civil rights movement and the communists supporting civil rights, and, and points out that when you get movements that come from outside the narrow confines of the political norm, you're going to get all kinds. If that destroys the credibility of anything outside the political norm, because they're held responsible for their most upsetting and fanatical or what have you people, well, that's a great way to destroy any political movement outside the norm, isn't it? Greenwald writes, quote, more importantly still, and directly contrary to what establishment liberals love to claim in order to demonize all who reject their authority, 
economic suffering, and xenophobia slash racism are not mutually exclusive. The opposite is true. The former fuels the latter, as sustained economic misery makes people more receptive to tribalistic scapegoating. That's precisely why plutocratic policies that deprive huge portions of the population of basic opportunity and hope are so dangerous. Claiming that supporters of Brexit or Trump or Corbyn or Sanders or anti-establishment European parties on the left and the right are motivated only by hatred, but not genuine economic suffering and political oppression, is a transparent tactic for exonerating status quo institutions and evading responsibility for doing anything about their core corruption. End quote. Hear, hear. I mean, what am, I mean, boom, right? I mean, that's what this is, folks. And, and, and again, what makes this potentially different from earlier ones, and maybe a reason to become more hopeful that this is, you know, not going to fall victim to the Alzheimer's problem, is that if it does, there'll be something else you know, down the road and then something else down the road. Because at this point, until you deal with the core problems, we've reached a critical mass now where enough people don't have any confidence in the old ways of dealing or perceived to be of dealing with the problems like our political system that they won't stand for it anymore. The two parties are no longer trusted by enough people so that it's making a difference. The politicians are not being trusted by enough people so that it's making a difference. Now, what sort of difference that will end up being well, that's anybody's guess. I mean, when you talk about change, you talk about change. One of the most comforting parts of the status quo is that you've had some time to get used to the way the water you're swimming in feels temperature-wise right now. May not be optimal, but I mean, listen, uh, you know, you start playing around with the thermometer, who knows where it'll be tomorrow? That's one of the things that helps sort of act as ballast for not just the establishment, but, but societies and continuity as a whole. It's the reason we don't overthrow governments every five minutes, right? Well, most of us. You know which countries you are that are listening that do that. And I'm jealous of you sometimes, too. But as has been pointed out in a couple of these articles, at a certain point, enough people feel more worried about the way things are than they feel about taking a chance on some unknown. And for the people in the positions of power, not just in the U.S., but around the world, to think that you could just blow off those concerns as a bunch of people who weren't being productive enough and who don't know how to run their own lives and are all on welfare and all that. You, you know, you keep saying that to yourself as though everyone who talks about the poor or the increasingly shrinking middle class and everything else, that those people are just, you know, they should go work at the local mission if they feel that way. But folks, this is a systemic stabilization question. In this country, I don't know what it's like in Europe, but in this country, you will run into a lot of people that will try to talk to you about this with ideology. Dan, let me tell you about the free market system for a minute. Let me tell you how it works. First of all, this is the greatest, most freest thing in the whole history of the human world, but there are going to be people who work harder and people that don't, and then there's natural, blah, 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 blah. And I keep thinking to myself, it doesn't matter, dude. It doesn't matter. Soon as enough people aren't winning in your system, your system will go away and you will be left on the sidelines arguing that system with a bunch of people who don't want to hear it anymore and control the levers of power by that point. Unless you're prepared to go all Ferdinand Marcos on this population, what would we say? That's an old reference, but you got to go all Saddam Hussein on this population. Um, they're going to express their dissatisfaction. And we're perhaps reaching a tipping point where it's enough dissatisfaction to influence elections. Nobody gives a damn if it's 1992 and those people can't make a dent in either party's support. But now they can. 
And again, this is why it's not going away. This is why, you know, we may move on and the media may move on and all those kinds of things, but there'll be another Occupy Wall Street or there'll be another financial crisis or there'll be another extremist candidate. Or We've told you before, I mean, the, the 2020 elections at this point from where we stand now look terrifying. And apparently not just in the U.S. How many more European countries might have voted to get out of the EU by then? And listen, you know, the, as we said at the beginning of the program, let's not say that a lot of people weren't hurt by this. I heard from a lot of people who are in the financial sector, who work in London and everything, who, who, who have suggested that this is absolutely catastrophic. Not catastrophic, I'm going to lose a little money. Catastrophic, like you just witnessed the end of the UK. To which one then asks, okay, what do we think about that? You know, when people say that to me about the United States, you know, they'll say, well, what if the United States broke up? I go, I don't know. What if the United States broke up? Let's talk about what you think that would mean. Because I think we sometimes lose track of, of what the whole point of it all is. The point of it all is to have the most amount of prosperity and good lives that you could afford your population. Now, how you define that from one country to another may be different. In the United States, traditionally, we put a lot of emphasis or at least a lot of mythological slogan value on the idea of things like freedom and liberty. So that, that would be something we would put a lot of theoretically uh, concern into in terms of, of what a system should maximize. But there are other ways to view it. The whole point, though, is, and I think people in a lot of these countries that seem to be voting more for nationalism and less for internationalism notice, is that voters tend to feel that the people who are making decisions for them in government are supposed to be making decisions that are good for them. And that the concerns of the people who elected them and the electorate should be what they focus on. And I think it's becoming harder and harder to deny that in a globalized world, it's sometimes difficult to even make the case that there's a moral side to that. I mean, sometimes I'll say with one of my NAFTA or GATT shows or trade shows, and someone will say, you know, I'll talk about globalizing the labor pool or whatever we would be discussing. And someone from one of these countries that is benefiting from a globalized labor pool will write me and say, why should our ability to pull ourselves out of poverty be held hostage because your people want to make a couple more dollars an hour? You know, how is that moral? The problem is, is that then you have one of two things. You have a, a government of people that are trying to make things better for their own people, perhaps at the expense of other people's people. I bet the voters would want that if you had to make a choice. Is this better for American workers or Indian workers? Well, we're, we're open. I mean, listen, we're a free trading country. We believe in a globalized world, and sometimes you have to take these hits. We'll uh, throw a education subsidy bill in the next uh, uh, budget, and, uh, and some more people can get trained and, and up their skills and make more money. I mean, there's a million ways we've, we've taken this, but the point is, is that people do not vote to have their legislators make things better in another country if it doesn't make things better for the people in their own. And yet a lot of these trade deals have done just that. And, and listen, I'm not trying to denigrate the way other people's lives have been improved, but I do want to point out that it might be a temporary bump. I mean, look at the folks in Mexico that were one of the first beneficiaries of the whole NAFTA thing and U.S. companies going over the border because they could have cheap labor and wouldn't it be great and it'll improve the lives of Mexicans. But then when Mexicans improve too much... There are countries that make less than Mexicans because the Mexicans are doing better. So we send those companies now out of Mexico to countries where they don't make as much as Mexico. In other words, you know, the idea of a race to the bottom in terms of wages, economically speaking, is not a myth. And just because your country's currently doing better, as soon as you hit that ceiling where your people are too well paid, you too will be victimized by the same idea. 
in the United States of America, it is taken as a given that this is a good thing in the economic circles because, after all, it is not in a com- company's interest to maximize wages if you're paying more than you need to retain the kind of people you want. I mean, it's just, you know, it's an e- economic question. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's good for the country. There's an old saying, uh, who was it, Ben? Calvin Coolidge, the U.S. president, the, the business of America is business. He said that, right? The implication being that what's good for business is also good for the United States. And once upon a time, when businesses were more national concerns, there might have been more of a connection to that, right? If, if Ford Motor Company's doing well, then Detroit's doing well. If Detroit's doing well, then Michigan's doing well. If Michigan's doing well, there's a pretty darn good chance most of the rest of that part of the country's doing well, and so on and so forth. But if Ford's an international company, well, then there's no necessarily direct connection between how Ford's doing and how Detroit's doing. In fact, they might not even be in Detroit anymore. After all, you know, the cost of labor is terrible. So once those conditions change, it only makes sense to sit back for a second and go, okay, let's reevaluate some of the ideas we've built our theories on, right? Do the, do the ideas of a pre-21st century globalized world still work in a 21st century globalized world? I think once upon a time, to keep patting myself on the back, Ben, I think we compared the post-Second World War system that we had on the planet to the shell of a crab that's, that's just outgrowing it. And instead of allowing the crab to, you know, shed its smaller shell and grow a, a better one for its current size, we're duct taping the current one on it. I see some more cracks. Let's duct tape it. And in a sense, we're doing it because that's really the human thing to do. I mean, look at history. People don't jump on board the let's dump the status quo bandwagon. They just don't. It's always a bit traumatic, like breaking off your old shell and putting on a new one. And it always comes with all sorts of uncertainty. And how often did we say that people bet on the way things are? And we said a lot of people have lost a lot of money since the Brexit vote, in part because they were betting on the way things were. And the way things were just changed. Am I the only person, by the way, that thinks that this two-year disconnect period is a long time and all kinds of fun things could happen? I mean, can you imagine... And I think, I think I read today, Ben, it's too bad I didn't turn on the mic right away because the first thing that came to my mind right after the vote is, you know, as soon as things get bad, and remember, things can get bad right away, the good long-term benefits, if there are any to this move by Britain, are, are things that won't be noticed for the longer time. So the worst time definitely confirmed is right away. I mean, because there will be no benefits initially and a lot of drawbacks. And so do you think to yourself, hmm, I wonder what the odds are You'd see a campaign running around saying, you know, British voters deserve a second chance. Now that we've seen how leaving the EU is going to be, you know, maybe the people's minds have changed. I mean, am I too cynical to think something like that might eventually pop up? Actually, if Ben is to be believed, or if I'm to believe in Ben, there's already a movement underway. Didn't you tell me that right before we started recording? Yes, there are already hundreds of thousands of signatures being gathered for people who want a second shot at this referendum deal. Wild. Maybe they could do best two out of three. And as folks in Britain were telling me, this is only an advisory vote, Dan, really. I mean, you know, these referendums are not binding. To which I would reply, okay, let's imagine for a second what would happen. You know, remember, the stock markets are assuming it's binding. We just, you know, prime minister just resigned, assuming it's binding. Um, But if if the parliament or whomever nullified the the results of that referendum, what do you think would happen then? Let's play with that idea for a minute. That would be freaky, okay? But, But the fact that we are so close to an idea like that being 
realistically played with should show you how far we've come. And there's a part of me that's scared to death, like I'm sure many of you are. You have kids, especially, you know, you look at this to play out over the much longer future. At the same time, I'm not sure we're going to get change of any kind without breaking the crab shell. And, and that may be what we're starting to see the beginnings of. I hear people out there talking about other aspects of this, which are not so economically minded. They're, they're interesting. I mean, the people that talk about this as a security mechanism in Europe. Kept the peace for 50 years, that kind of thing. Well, I mean, listen, nobody's got a crystal ball. Nobody can see 40, 50 years ahead of time. All I know is right now the U.S. is trying to get some of those EU countries to up their defense spending to 2% of GDP in countries that don't exactly have some of them large GDPs, and they won't even do that. So I'm not, at least in the short term, concerned about that. Uh, I do think also it would be possible to divorce military cooperation and whatnot from these economic questions and certainly not have to be incorporated into an almost United States of Europe, if you will, in order to have some security situation that was stable. And stable is probably where we should come back around and tie a bow on this thing because that's really what we're talking about here if you want to look at it in macro terms. No system remains stable forever. And like an old computer system, you can patch it and you can patch it and you can patch it, but eventually it becomes brittle if you do that enough. If you prevent evolutionary change, maybe we would use the analogy of uh, if you don't regularly update, then eventually you get to a point where it becomes impossible to change anything without breaking something else. And those are the moments that become very scary in terms of change, but you can't get better without breaking something at this point. Eggs must be broken. If the best case scenario is happening here and we are starting to wake up and really recognize the larger problems at play here, right? That, that this system that we've developed, especially since, um, you know, the Second World War, totally, but, but since the 1980s, 1990s especially, that this system is not going to work for enough of the people to make it stable, to make it viable. These people on these financial shows that are writing off the poor seem to think that you can have 5% uh, doing okay and 95% not doing okay. And as long as your ideology says, hey, this is all about, you know, merit and winners and losers and, you know, you should have worked harder and all that. If you think that's going to get you out of trouble, you're delusional. The gangrenous finger has made its presence known. So what are you going to do about it now? And, and, and here's where I hope we don't go, but I bet the odds on favorite place to go. Band-Aids again. You know what a Band-Aid is? If you hear a politician do this, you just know we're talking about duct tape and Band-Aids and making the system even more brittle. When a politician's answer to the problems we face today is a tax break for college, tax break for IRAs, or, I mean, that sort of, what nonsense. And, and by the way, the exact things we've done for the last 30 and 40 years to put Band-Aids on the problem already, how's that working out for people? If the Band-Aids like that had worked, we wouldn't be here. Those Band-Aids come out so that we don't have to do real surgery. We have a busted appendix, though, and if you don't operate at some point, it's going to kill you. Now, what does kill you mean? Oh, that's a good question, too, isn't it? What, what is the worst-case scenario that you can dream up in your head 
well, shall we say 15 years from now, Ben? What's a logical thing? It seems like everything's speeding up, doesn't it? But, but start thinking about worst case scenarios and then start thinking about best case scenarios and then ask yourself, if we just kept on the same course we're on right now, what happens? Sometimes things get to a point where there are no good solutions. It becomes a lot easier then to make choices than when seemingly there's a safe choice in front of you. You know, so often it's the natural thing, isn't it? Stability. We know where it's going. The temperature of the water's not great, but it's okay. At a certain point, you come to multiple forks in the road, and they all look equally uncertain. What do you do then? Well, I would hope we would start to talk about it. And after reading 14 or 15 stories in the papers today and yesterday, we are. And that's the first step to something better happening. I hope the Brexit thing works out for the folks in the UK. I, I mean, listen, you know, what I always try to remind myself, as I said about history, that this, these are real people and this is real pain and this is real suffering. But I would also hope that if this has to happen and they have to suffer like this, then they ought to get a benefit for it. The suffering ought to count for something and it ought to be part of making things better. As a person on the fringe who's been talking about this stuff, for years, it's hard not to feel some satisfaction to see everybody talking about it. I'm just sorry I had to come to this before we could. Want to help the podcasts? Just buy your Amazon.com products through the Amazon search window on dancarlin.com, and Dan and Ben will get a percentage of what you spend, and it won't cost you a penny more. If you think the show you just heard is worth a dollar, Dan and Ben would love to have it. For less than the price of a cup of coffee, you can help keep the common sense coming. A buck a show. It's all we ask. Go to dancarlin.com for information on how to donate to the show.